1: Hey there, I'm Consequences Sound film editor Dominic Suzanne Mayer, host of Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast. Every quarter I spotlight a different visionary director and team up with a rotating panel of guests for a comprehensive dive into that director's body of work. From style to performance to the little things you might not have caught on a first, second, or third viewing, Filmography turns the lens around for a closer look at the greatest visionaries of the silver screen. Find us at Consequences Sound, iTunes, or wherever you procure fine podcasts.
3: Consequence Podcast Network. Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP, a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel-to-reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place shop for music on the go with the reverb lp app available on android and ios or find them online at lp.reverb.com
1: hello and welcome to discography i'm your host mark with a c i'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this here show on consequence podcast network but i've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for about 20 years now nearly discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know all opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective right but discography can be a really personal journey for me your host which you should know up front thanks for tuning in to episode five of season three So thanks for coming back. Episode 5, Season 3 of Discography. I want to jump in before I really get going today. I want to tell you, if somehow you've surfed in here on accident and you have not heard any episodes from this season... Please, I implore you, go back to episode one of season three. This is a very different season of discography. We are never doing it. Well, knock on wood. We are likely never approaching another artist in this manner again because it was my belief that to tell the story of The Who, yes, the records do tell quite an amazing tale, but I think that the real story of The Who is actually told in a lot of projects that weren't completed. That's sort of how they ended up getting to... Their end result. And for a band that ends up in the trifecta of the Beatles, the Stones, you know, The Who, they just, they don't nearly have the output. Like it doesn't match in sheer volume, in sheer numbers, what say the Beatles released in a much, much shorter span of time. But I also believe that the solo records are a very important part of The Who's story. So with that said, please, I beg of you, if you're just jumping in now, go back to episode one binge it make it like a first release netflix kind of weekend i think it'll reward you i think you'll have a better time but if not hey i'm not going to tell you what to do listen to this show however you'd like if you want to listen to it like dangling from a grappling hook from well i mean as long as it's legal you know listen however you want okay i once it's left me i can't control what you do with it nor what i want to but I, I do think you might have a better time if you started episode one. So with that said, we're going to jump into what many sarcastically call the Who's first farewell era. Yes, we're going to jump into the dead center and tail end of 1982. And uh, look, I got to be honest, there's going to be a little less Who content and more individual member content in the duration of this episode. But it's really important that we talk about 1982. Last episode, we left off with All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes. Today, we're going to kick off with the release of the Who album, It's Hard. Strap in. The ride's only going to get weirder. September of 1982 saw the release of one of The Who's most controversial works, an album called It's Hard. Pete would claim that the band didn't even want to make the album, and Roger would go on record stating that it never should have been released. Some fans utterly hate it, yet it garnered a 5-star review at the time from Rolling Stone where they'd refer to this album as their most vital work since Who's Next. And really the truth is somewhere up the middle. So let me state up front, I like this album. Maybe it's not my favorite one, but I don't have any real issues with it. It's a fine rock and roll album, really, but the problems began way before the first notes were recorded, as when Pete showed up ready to work, he found that the trio of Roger Daltrey, John Entwistle, and Kenny Jones were already rehearsing without him, and he surely must have been asking himself why he'd even shown up in the first place. Reticent to go through the same cold response that greeted him upon playing the band those face dances demos, This time, he asked the band what they'd like him to write about. They mostly seemed to agree on the topics of aging, mortality, the then-current Cold War and threat of nuclear destruction, and a fair amount of just generally being angry at women. Understandably, it's just going to be a different sort of Who album. But you wouldn't really know it from the opening track, Athena. Those pummeling drums, those attacking banjo strums, it sounds like the four have finally coalesced into the proper and expected who-like groove. And Roger tackles the challenging lyrical rhythm with aplomb, and though the track was initially written about Pete being desperately smitten with actress Teresa Russell and his anger at the unrequited situation, many folks had misunderstood the lyrics as being far more sinister. Pete occasionally pops in to sing the line, She's a bomb, which a number of fans misheard as, she's a whore. Now while I totally believe that Athena is pretty much what any Who fan could have signed up for, it's also my belief that the decision to front load the album Right afterwards, with two relatively weak tracks, is where the disconnect lies for so many people, because it's hard definitely gets better and finds its footing as it plays on. John contributes a song called It's Your Turn that mostly seems to be goading young musicians to even attempt to take him on, while the super repetitive Cooks County just really isn't doing anyone many favors, but when you get to the earworm of the title track, everything starts to feel just right again.
2: And
1: now it's not even a contest that the most well-known song on its hard is the eternal groover known as Eminence Front. If you can find a way to really zero in on what John Entwistle's doing here, it's some pretty mind blowing stuff. I mean, yeah, he does stay in key and all, but it's so complex for a relatively simple song that once you hear it, you can't unhear it, and it's always the star of the show from that point on. An odd fact concerning this tune that one might even recognize from Miami Vice is that while Pete is the lead vocalist, not only was a version with Roger on vocals completed, but Pete actually seemed to prefer it, well, If I'm basing my assumption on a comment he made in 2016 on a concert stage when we thought that a career-spanning box set was on the way, but hey, what can we do? We'll talk about that later. Anyways, he seemed to be scratching his head at why producer Glenn Johns had decided to use the first take to his ears were riddled with errors, like you might have noticed that Pete was just a, a smidge late on joining in with the gang vocals on the words, It's an Eminence Front, well, that always kind of rankled Pete. And later when they'd remix the album, that would be quote-unquote fixed, but we're not even close to talking about that stuff yet. Now on the total flip side, there's a gorgeous ballad called One Life's Enough that's somewhere between Pete's more spiritual writing and the more syrupy ballads found on Daltry solo records. Once you hear it, it just sort of begs out that Pete should be crooning this one instead.
2: And I feel like I
1: read somewhere that Pete actually did sing a take for One Life's Enough, but now I just can't find it to confirm that. But Hey, you know, if you do know where to confirm it, please, please let me know. Getting back to the album, in Rolling Stone's initial review, they claimed that the track called I've Known No War could be as big and popular and powerful as Won't Get Fooled Again, and yes, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but it's sort of emblematic of It's Hard's biggest shortcomings. When it works best, it's often something you've already heard one of the members do before a million times. This can be a frustrating revelation because, think this through. Nearly every time The Who makes a massive change after Quadrophenia, fans would beg them just to go back to being The Who they already knew, right? But this would even reach as far as the solo albums. When Pete struck gold with Empty Glass, not even his management was happy about his next phase of writing. And when John's solo albums started becoming little more than 50s style parodies, I struggled myself. Meanwhile, when the band just does what's expected of them, the results were often less than warmly received, much like this album, and that's always puzzled me, as the band may not be chameleons on the level of, say, David Bowie, but they often weren't afforded the same opportunity for change. Fans heard a band spinning their wheels with It's Hard, and it seems that the band was actually on the exact same page. Now, the two biggest highlights for me come very late in the album. One of these is a track called A Man as A Man, and it's the simplest topic. You don't have to be toxic to be masculine. And this track was written long before the advent of Tumblr, obviously. But the beautiful tune wouldn't be far off from what might sound like it came from the mindset of a so-called social justice warrior.
2: some afraid of insane if can break I remember
1: the first time I'd heard the album and I was totally stunned that they'd bury such a wonderful song so deep in the record but I think it's often overshadowed by the closing tune cry if you want hey.
2: About how long it took to get over that
1: Kenny Jones lays down a military beat while Roger displays an amazing amount of breath control with a set of lyrics that might have been almost too timely. Some have called it a response to my generation, but years later. It's powerful on the record no matter how you slice it, but in the context of what's to come, it's practically an emotional wrecking ball. Now, would It's Hard benefit from reappraisal? Possibly. Does it seem a little overlong even at 46 minutes? I can't really argue with that. But ultimately, is it enjoyable? Absolutely. It's not Tommy Part 2, despite the kid who has upgraded from a pinball machine to an arcade game on the front cover. It's a real shame that more people didn't catch the buzz for this album, as it'd be the last full album of new material under the Who's moniker for nigh on 25 years. (laughs) As its hard was prepping to hit record store shelves, it stands to reason that the Who would gear up to tour behind it. A bit of suspicion rose as this so-called like band of the people allowed the tour to be sponsored by a beer company, which not only wasn't the most common practice at the time, it was practically verboten when such an action would emit cries of SELL OUT from the purists. But the Who had been shills before, really from day one, and having based an entire record around it, so one could hardly blame them for such a move. Somewhere along the lines, though, it was decided that this relatively short promo jaunt of around two and a half months would in fact become the band's farewell tour. It's all too easy to point fingers as to who really put the clamp down on ending the group but with the fighting the drugs the deaths the drama and a record that the band didn't seem to have any faith in it's actually the most logical decision that they could have likely made at the time that said if it had instead been billed as say the last tour before an extended hiatus the group probably wouldn't get any flack for continuing to work together later on but as no one could predict what the future would have in store it sure must have felt like Getting out of this massive machine was the best possible move for their individual sanity and needs. There's a lot of circulating video of the tour, and no amount of editing or fancy camera work can hide just how much Pete looked like he'd completely checked out by the time they were playing two sold out nights at Shea Stadium, despite the band still playing quite well.
2: Substitute my is black. And, a
1: super and based on the circulating videos from Seattle and San Diego, they only got better as the 1982 tour went on. Even jacking Pete's increasingly thin guitar tone to cover the absence of John Rabbit Bundrick, who'd been replaced by Tim Gorman for these dates. Their December 1982 shows in Ohio were recorded for future usage, and though the tour wrapped up with two nights at Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens, all comers were able to see what was purported as the final show on December 17th. Not only was the show simulcast on nearly every fm rock radio station in the country but hbo ran cuts from the concert often and the video would be the most easily obtainable view into the who's live performances on home video besides the kids are all right for many years some saw an exhausted ban some saw the performance as proof that there was still gas in the tank so to speak as one would expect there were no teary speeches and if you'd miss that this was supposed to be the proverbial end of the road at the gig somehow It might have just seemed like a good but relatively uneventful show. Of course, this gig was also the entry point for at least one Who fan who hosts the show Discography for the Consequence podcast network, so it's pretty pointless to argue that the gig wasn't effective. An emotional night for music lovers everywhere was met with a good yet workmanlike performance from The Who. And all those folks that had shouted at the band to get on with it when the band would banter on stage, they might have finally gotten what they asked for, but at the exact moment, they'd have likely wanted more. It was an important event for many people, but all that has happened since obscures just how big of a deal that final concert was at the time. He had suggested that the band could carry on with just making records and avoid touring, but John in particular felt that he'd not be able to properly express himself, and Roger seemed pretty steadfast in his reticence to work with Kenny Jones again, so it may have been an actual impasse that truly brought the Who to this ending. But now, everyone would need to dust themselves off and find what to do next. John seemed to start taking up any excuse to play with absolutely any offer that would come down the pike, Roger threw himself into his acting while prepping to be a full-time solo artist, and Pete took a job as an editor at the publishing company Faber & Faber. But that doesn't mean that Pete was tossing music aside. Quite the contrary, actually. His first post-Who release reached record store shelves in early 1983. It was a compilation of some of his home demos. This release was a compilation called Scoop. proves that it turns out that yes all of those rumors about how sincerely fantastic Pete's working demos were 100% true as evidenced by his primitive takes on stuff like so sad about us, magic bus, bargain, squeeze box and a surprisingly tender take on behind blue eyes. When my fist clenches, crack it open But there's also some brand new things to be found here. And they come from all over Pete's timeline. And as it does contain a ton of previously released songs, I'm not going to be covering the Scoop series terribly in depth. In fact, hang on, timeout. Before I go much further, let me be blunt with you. Going forward, there is a 25 year long divide between Who records. And I'm mostly going to be talking about solo records for a while. Some of these are just sort of blips in hindsight, so I'll be spending a good amount of time talking about things that might be along the quote major release side of things, but some things I'll only be talking about in a cursory way. As I've stated before, it's my belief that the real story of The Who is told between their actual albums, and this period's no exception, but facing facts, there's just not a ton of actual Who material to talk about for a while. So in case you've gotten this far and wondered why I might have spent a bunch of time and attention on say odds and sods, but don't go super in depth with the scoop series and some of Roger and John's solo endeavors, that's your reason. Otherwise we'd be here for a much much longer period of time talking about things that barely even register for some subsets of hardcore fans. And I'll do my best to hit on the most important and noteworthy events of course. I'm just letting you know that there's a sea change afoot for this season, and it starts right now. Anyways, getting back to Scoop, besides some literal machine experiments, some guitar doodles, a few complete oddities, there's a few really cool and unreleased tunes here, especially the beautiful and welcoming track called You Came Back, a rejected demo for face dances called Dirty Water, and even some borderline psychedelic home demos for tracks like Politician and Melancholia. literally only grazes the surface of what Pete can make on his own, but because of its all-over-the-place nature, it might actually be one of the more accurate depictions of all that Pete Townsend the artist had been up until this point, and therefore it's completely worth your time, as is pretty much anything from the Scoop series, especially if you've made it this far and you want to know even more. <laughs> The first solo album of new original material released by any member of the group landed in early 1984 in the form of Roger Daltrey's Parting Should Be Painless. Roger had claimed that he was sourcing material that would represent his own feelings about the Who dissolving, but if we're being totally honest here, I didn't know that was the intention until I was doing extra research for this season of discography. It's dramatically different from anything that The Who had done, and that was by design, with Roger insisting in promotional interviews that these ten songs were intended to represent styles of music that he'd felt that his group should have explored before, or perhaps instead of calling it a day. Critical and fan reaction was negative enough to show that maybe Roger alone didn't always know best, and despite the pretty generic and bland writing and production found throughout this album not to mention Roger almost sounding listless at times in his delivery, it starts to seem like a blessing that The Who didn't carry on with Roger leading the charge. An offer that Pete would repeatedly make, reminding him that, in his own estimation, that Roger and John could carry on without him. This record is a pretty good example of how disastrous such a move could have been. All that aside, after you get through nine tracks with... Ghastly mellow saxophones, overly gated reverbed out snare drums, and a general slickness that chokes the life out of songs written by the likes of The Arhythmics and Brian Ferry, the record closes with a track that actually does show quite a bit of promise. It's called Don't Wait on the Stairs. I mean, the song doesn't completely redeem Parting Should Be Painless, but it also gives just enough promise and surprise that one couldn't be blamed if they immediately turned the record over to begin again, trying to see if you'd miss something this cool on your first listen. Due to the way that the record has gone in and out of print so quickly and often over the years, I can't help but to think that even Roger's perfectly aware that this didn't quite work out the way that he'd hoped. And with a bit more care and passion, Parting Should Be Painless could have been a pretty welcomed coming-out party for Roger Daltrey, the solo artist. Instead, the few that bought it may have reacted in a once-bitten-twice-shy kind of way. He must have seemed positively out of touch with his fan base, his label's wants, and really even his own intentions. It could have been a contender. But instead, Parting Should Be Painless just sort of... is... November of 1984 saw the release of a live album from The Who's quote-unquote farewell tour called Who's Last. Initially, John Entwistle cooked up a track list that used live tracks from all phases of the band's career, but the suits at MCA weren't thrilled with a tracklist that reportedly barely contained any hits and ultimately decided that a time capsule of the farewell tour would sell better for that all-important Christmas market. John's original track list, from what I remember, might seem a bit scattershot at first glance, and if I had it directly in front of me, I'd rattle off the whole shebang for you, but I'm just not finding any traces of that original intention on the web, though it's clear that John would have a better vantage point for compiling and mixing a live Who album than anyone not in the band, save for maybe Bob Pridden, their longtime soundman. As a result, we ended up with this... thing. Mostly recorded at the... Third and fourth to last gigs from the 1982 tour. Who's Last is basically a glorified greatest hits album at first appearance, but communicates all you really need to know about the Who's level of passion at a time. So, as a reminder, here's a bit of what My Generation sounded like on Live at Leeds. And now here's what they sounded like on Who's Last doing the exact same song. They sound sort of tired, worn out, lifeless almost, just in comparison. It's shocking because there were genuinely good nights and performances from this tour, and it almost seemed like producer Cy Langston set out to make the product disappointing on purpose. I know he didn't, but it seems that way. <laughs> Even more head-scratching is that when you go through this track list, there's precisely one song that even hails from after 1973,
2: which is Who Are You? you?
1: But there's an easy answer for this. It's actually really simple. Warner Brothers had the rights to face dances and it's hard and MCA didn't want to pay to use the songs so they just avoided them altogether. This is especially unfortunate because on the best nights in 1982, stuff like The Quiet One, Eminence Front, and Cry If You Want could really, really slay. Instead, we get around 80 minutes of tepid renditions of classic songs badly mixed, half-heartedly performed, and hardly representative of what the album even purported to be. With so much in the vault that could have been used instead, as the years go by, the cash-in nature of this live album, which actually had a lot of promise on paper, becomes more and more clear. Stranger Still was the decision to promote this album with a single version of a cover of Twist and Shout with John Entwistle on lead vocals. It's pretty hard to argue that it's the weakest moment on a weak release, and one can't really blame the public for staying away in droves. Victories do abound. Like, yes, while the album does sound a tad mushy and weird, they're still trying to mix it live at Leeds style, with John mostly being in the left channel, Pete mostly being in the right, and Roger, Kenny, and Tim Gorman right up the middle. And the inclusion of Dr. Jimmy and Long Live Rock on an otherwise unpredictably predictable track list is actually kind of inspired, but that's about it, really. all it's passable as it is but for those in the know this thing dilutes and neuters the onstage power of the who in immeasurable ways i can't even imagine the brand damage that must have taken place thanks to this thing because well you know how hard i tried to point out a few bright spots those are literally the only kind words i've ever even seen regarding this release besides a few fans who have a soft spot for it because they might have heard it at just the right time in their lives for the rest of us Inessential listening, but essential to understanding the duality of a band that seemed to miss being together at times, but then couldn't get motivated when they actually got together to make something happen. Those who were hoping for a bright and shiny change of pace were rewarded in 1985 by a book written by Pete Townsend called Horse's Neck. I mention this collection of short stories not only because they are sometimes autobiographical but because they often expand on the very makeup, themes, and situations of some Who songs and Pete solo cuts like Athena, Sister Disco, and Exquisitely Bored. And while it's certainly worth a read based on that alone, it's also a bizarre hodgepodge of references and stories full of misdirection and imagery in place of actual information that you're not even surprised when the narrator seems to express going through the motions of having sexual relations with a horse by the end. It's one of those check it out at your own risk books, but if you're a Townsend scholar, it's pretty darn essential depending on what you like best about his work. It only took a mere two and a half years to get The Who back together on a concert stage. The occasion? Live Aid. A benefit concert literally held around the globe to raise money for those who were and are starving in Africa. Now Live Aid as a general festival has always fascinated me and it's really tempting to go off on about a billion tangents about Bob Geldof's brainchild but we've already got plenty to cover here so we'll stick to the Who's 20 minute long set. Besides a DVD set of some highlights, there's no legally available recordings from this show, so we're going pretty off script here, but it's an important stepping stone to where we're going. So as one can imagine, getting the four members on the same page for this gig was always going to be a challenge, and even finding adequate rehearsal time was next to impossible with everyone's schedules and locations taken into consideration, and the internal politics certainly didn't help. Roger really didn't want to play with Kenny, but there was no time to replace him. Pete wanted the band to learn a special new song for the event called After The Fire, but they didn't have time to learn it. Now anyone who has ever seen The Who live knows that they'll come out pretty strong and energetic, but their gigs tend to be a marathon and not a sprint. Those slow burn gigs often erupt into something pretty joyful and transcendent, and the band knows this all too well, always struggling with these types of shows that wanted them to compact their legendary stage prowess into 20 minutes or less from the moment they stepped onto the stage. Technical problems ensued. John couldn't get his base to work properly, and when one finally did come to life, it was hopelessly out of tune. And barely a minute into the opening My Generation, the satellite feed cut out, and what was supposed to be a worldwide audience became that of only the attendees present at Wembley Stadium on July 13th of 1985. Towards the end of Pinball Wizard, the feed came back, but it was Won't Get Fooled Again that seemed to have the most lasting impression, as numerous missed cues happened, and an attempt to bring the show to a nicer climax with an impromptu reprise of the song at the end was marred by Pete attempting to kick his leg over the microphone stand, but instead, he fell right over. In a very sweet gesture of brotherhood, when it really mattered, Roger Daltrey saw this out of the corner of his eye and dropped to the ground as well to start rolling around, as if to say that this was intentional. It wasn't the band's finest hour, it probably didn't make Pete any more eager to get back on a stage to do the hits again, but it was enough to begin the mending of some fences and hints of collaboration between the members again. Roger seemed to try to right as many of Live Aid's wrongs as possible with his September 1985 album, Under a Raging Moon. First off, he records his very own version of Pete's After the Fire. It's arguably the strongest solo track Roger has ever had up to this point, and in his hands, it becomes an ode to an acceptance of the past, allowing yourself to miss it, but also allowing yourself to make changes for a better future. It does sound very, very of its time, but the crossroads is unmistakable, and it sets the tone for where Roger's going. The record is book ended by the title track, Under a Raging Moon, which is a not at all subtle and incredibly on the nose tribute to Keith Moon. It delivers a lot of the rock and roll punch that one might hope for from an ex member of The Who, and vocally, it actually seems quite cathartic and like it might have been what Roger really needed to say after processing everything.
2: Under
1: Of course, you can't just do a Keith Moon tribute with any old session drummer, so Raj calls on the likes of Martin Chambers, Roger Taylor, Cozy Powell, Stuart Copeland, Carl Palmer, and a young man named Zach Starkey to weave together an epic drum solo, because let's face it, you'd need a lot of overlapping hands and feet to even come close to Keith's everyday style. Importantly, while Pete wanted to play After the Fire at Live Aid, it was actually John that insisted that this song was performed instead of the ill-fated version of Won't Get Fooled Again at the same show, to which Pete hemmed and hawed. The fact that both songs are included here as a tribute to all that had come before while also mending fences of disagreements surely went a long way towards reconciliation on the part of everyone. But in between those two despite Under a Raging Moon potentially being the most commercially successful solo album Roger would release in this decade, it all too often falls into the trappings of just kind of generic barroom rock, no matter who happens to actually be singing the tune. I want to emphasize that despite these ears hearing some fairly interchangeable tunes here on the whole, it's not for a lack of trying on Roger's part. See, remember how in the past I said that I could pretty much bet someone else wrote the tunes and while Daltrey might have been involved, you get the impression he mostly showed up long enough to sing it and go home? That is definitely not the case here. Roger co-writes half the album, and beyond singing he does his own backing vocals, he plays the keyboards, he even runs the sequencers and the emulators, so this is not just some phoned in record. Roger Daltrey clearly wanted something specific, and he ran right at it head first here. And that's just respectable after a few records of his that I couldn't make heads or tails of.
2: You think it doesn't show?
1: Elsewhere on the *Under a Raging Moon* album, you're gonna find more of the same, really. To be frank, if it sounds a lot like a Brian Adams album, that'd be because Brian Adams was a key writer for the two other highlights here. One of which is *Let Me Down Easy*, and then there's *Rebel*. Don't tell
2: me what's wrong. Oh,
1: While Rebel might be a little bit cheeseball, a little bit overwrought, and a little bit angst for the sake of angst, it's another entry kind of like After the Fire, bringing Roger back to telling stories so that his vocal bark has something to build to. And the failings of so many of his solo songs is that it's either all soft or all aggressive vocalization with little gear switching and next to no rising and falling action. Rebel fixes this by incorporating a climax, an emotional apex of sorts, and kind of reminds you in one fell swoop why this guy is the voice of arena rock. The album cracked the US Top 50, and the singles at least broke into the Top 100. Roger even found himself in a position with enough solo hits under his belt to undertake a sizable tour to promote Under a Raging Moon. That effort paid off greatly, even if the album itself can sometimes be a bit give or take, but whatever the intentions might have been, this one is just more solid as a piece than most of Roger's solo albums have been and thus began what appeared to be the acceptance of the past being in the past while still using all that you've learned to move forward. And for that reason, it's about as successful and recommendable of an album as one could have hoped for from Roger at this point. And the future looks pretty damn bright now. In November of 1985, Pete Townsend released another cracking collection of pop and rock songs called White City, a novel. First I'm going to tell you a little bit about the facts regarding it, and then I'm going to veer way off into personal interpretation territory. Territory that I'm probably just flat out wrong about, but hey, I told you in advance this could be a pretty personal journey, so please stop giving me that look. Thanks. Let's begin.
2: But you may find the not
1: Though White City purports to be a novel, it arrives with scant liner notes, and it may actually be the soundtrack to a little scene film that helps put the songs and concept into perspective. But again, this ain't filmography, so I'm not going to go into talking about the film just yet. Instead, let's stick to the nine-song 38-minute platter and see what we've got. And really, just like you might have gleaned from that clip of Give Blood, one of the singles from this album that received heavy FM airplay, it's musically a bit like you threw empty glass and all the best cowboys have Chinese eyes into a blender and got a weird yet highly enjoyable mixture of both. It's more straight ahead at times, and as it progresses, the record becomes more and more fragmented, but it doesn't ever stop being interesting. a clip of what might be the best-known track from this album called Face the Face. It's got an unwavering boom-bap drum beat, and it comes with no dynamics while the instruments surrounding will come and go, build into a dizzying and fun high without ever really becoming overwhelming, and it's a formula that could have easily ended up disastrous or even just repetitive and annoying. But instead it was a bonafide hit single in the US, reaching number 3 on the Billboard mainstream rock charts, but the only drawback to that song being the hit is… That if you enjoyed it, there's absolutely nothing else like it here on this album. that goes for pretty much any song you'd like to zero in on here. The song structures are more traditional than all the best cowboys, sure. The lyrics are just as cutting as those on empty glass while not being autobiographical, while still being somebody's truth. And the record is varied enough that if you aren't digging something, you know perfectly well that something brand new is waiting in the next set of grooves. And if I'm being completely upfront, it's really best to just let White City wash over you without paying too much attention to the song titles, as many titles are purely in reference to something you'd already heard. Like the heartwarming and drum machine-led song called Hiding Out, one couldn't be blamed for getting it mixed up with a later song called I Am Secure. of Hiding Out, and for years I actually thought it was a misprint on the back cover, that I Am Secure actually went where Hiding Out went, but uh, it was a whole thing. And that's not the only deceptive moment. Any Who fan would be excited to hear the slashing guitar that opens side twos crashing by design. But before you even know what's going on, the track has settled into a bouncy synth-pop tune that wouldn't have been totally out of place rocking the roller rinks of
2: 1985. You the crazy into you. You
1: a and for those not too familiar with the United Kingdom, let's just clear this up. White City is an actual place in England, a low-income housing estate. And while I don't know how they picked the name for the place, this doesn't seem to be a racial thing, though I'm scared to be wrong... So that's all I'm going to say about that. But anyways, so the movie. All right, get this. It's about an aging rock star coming home or somewhere near it to check in on... Drum roll, please. A guy named Jimmy. Jimmy in this film appears to be around the same age that the Jimmy from Quadrophenia would have been around this point and here's pete trying to get them to talk about their feelings their problems and then playing the perfect song to mirror it though the story is interesting while not really going much of anywhere or seeing any resolution here's my assumption which is sure to be controversial white city is disc three of quadrophenia as pete tries to get in touch with his past to move forward and if jimmy is made up of the four members of the who and one of them has passed away that would account for the parts of Jimmy that now seem a little bit ineffectual or maybe even a bit dead inside. It works in my head canon, and I'm perfectly aware that this is probably pure projection, but if it isn't, this might actually be the most misunderstood thing that Pete had and ever will put out. Pete was ready to stand behind this record with gigs too. Unfortunately, for reasons still unknown, after the label had sold a certain amount of copies, they then also made the strange decision to just stop producing more this occurred while the album was still relatively fresh and might account for why an album with at least two undeniable hit singles isn't more widely known or spoken about white city seems to know where it's going but it only shows that destination to us in impressionistic ways i mean Hey, David Gilmour shows up and plays guitar, and that's pretty cool, but much like Quadrophenia, it's left ambiguous enough that surely, whatever you get out of this thing is the right thing. If Pete wanted you to know for sure, he'd be direct. He's certainly shown himself to be more than capable of being heavy-handed to move a story along. I'm not sure what keeps this one so relatively under the radar as time marches on... But there might still be far more to discover about White City than its relatively skimpy running time would portend. Pete would do some solo shows to promote the White City album, but you could count the dates on Mickey Mouse's fingers. And it's a shame, too, because this crack band that he dubbed Deep End contained not only... John Rabbit Bundrick back on keys, but an animated percussionist named Jody Lynn Scott who already had a super impressive resume, Simon Phillips on drums who you might remember popping up on the McVicker soundtrack, the ever-present Peter Hope Evans on harmonica, an entire horn section, and the addition of a lead guitarist that you might have heard of named David Gilmour. Though his addition to the band wasn't as slapdash as it might look on paper. actually. David and Pete had been collaborating on songs sent back and forth to each other since at least David Gilmore's 1984 album About Face. And though David sometimes had trouble relating to Pete's lyrics, which would result in the song White City Fighting ending up on Pete's record rather than Gilmore's, they still seemed to see the potential in a union. The band would play at the Brixton Academy and the Cannes Film Festival to rave reviews, and then... Pete got flashes of being away from home, away from his family, and all of the miserable parts of being on tour, seeming to pull the plug on the band's activity very quickly.
2: Oh, the no river. And right now,
1: now those shows were kind of skimpy on Who material, often only making up around a fifth of the set list, maybe. But anyone who was dying for new Who activity was satiated by a new rarities compilation called Who's Missing. Kind of in the style of Odds and Sods, but not exactly, as many of the tunes had already been previously released as B-sides, but you still got some glimpses into the pre-My Generation album that was scrapped, not to mention an astounding and ripping live version of Bargain recorded at that fateful show in San Francisco back in December of 1971 that we are still waiting for the release of... The Best! Meanwhile, Roger wrapped up his tour for Under a Raging Moon in early 1986, taking a page from Pete's book and only playing a scant amount of Who material on stage to focus on his own solo material. He'd also had another bit of chart success from singing the theme to a film called Quicksilver. The movie wasn't a huge success, but the song plucked enough heartstrings to bring Roger's single to number 11 on the Billboard charts. Pete would also have a bit of soundtrack success with a song from a film called Playing for Keeps, known as Life to Life, which also graced the U.S.'s top 40 charts, and in actuality, while still relatively obscure, it's arguably more famous than the film it even came from and it wasn't the only work that Pete was up to at this time. Having begun an album provisionally titled Begin's Tangos, and Love, which as one can extrapolate from the title, was intended to be a dance record, but he seemed to scrap it as quickly as he'd begun. Either the Muse wasn't with him for this collection, or more likely he saw the opportunity to make a new type of concept album and he was just too excited to think about much else. Meanwhile, if you're wondering what John was up to, Well, let's talk about that, but I'm afraid that there aren't many easy answers at all. John Entwistle's first solo album since 1981 was called The Rock, and it should have come out in 1986 on one of the Warner Electra Atlantic-owned labels, but it didn't. I don't know why that is. And while I can tell you things about the album that would eventually appear officially in various formations, I, I have to admit that this album totally defeated me and that besides my assumption that John just wanted to make another straight up rock album, I have no idea what the hell happened here or even why this was attributed to John in the first place. I mean, yes, he does play bass on the whole thing, but you're not going to get many, ah, that's John friggin' Twistle moments, if any. John wrote maybe four of these 11 songs, enlisted Henry Smalls from the band Prism to sing lead vocals, and also write the rest of the album. So, like I said, I just don't get it. If Roger's solo records could sometimes find themselves in slightly generic territory, John's newest record was so mired in cliché that I can't come up with how they even pitched this to the WIA system in the first place. I mean, who in in their right mind sits down and sells a John Entwistle solo album that doesn't seem to really represent John at all to such a major industry? How did they make this sound like a good idea in the first place? I mean, sure, I'm as intrigued as a hardcore Who fan can be. You tell me that there's an unreleased John Entwistle album in the vaults and I'm gonna salivate until I get to hear some of it. I mean, you've heard me go on and on about the San Francisco 1971 show, and that thing pretty much already exists, but oddly, hearing this album that represents 1986 better than the guy the album is attributed to (laughs) raises far more questions than if I'd never heard the album at all. So take the chorus of a song called Billy, for example. You can clearly hear John's unmistakable style, but it's surrounded by so many other things that don't seem to go with it that little ever truly comes together. So let's be straight up here. If you like hair metal from around 1986 and you're curious about what John Entwistle would do in one of those bands, this is absolutely your one-stop shop to satiate your incredibly specific existential quandary. I'm not even going to pretend that this album might simply not make much sense to me, your host, but someone else might see this as a pile of untapped gold. My ears instead hear a bunch of people writing John's coattails while John lets them do it. But ultimately, the album was going to be impossible to market, and it sat in a vault for years until CDR copies showed up on the solo tours that John would start to undertake a few years down the line. If this had been attributed to, say, John Entwistle's new band that was called The Rock, would not be confused at all. Like... Okay, John joined a then current band to make new rock and roll. Fine, I get that. Attributing the album solely to John is where this stops making any sense. Like, okay, a few years later, Kenny Jones would join up with Paul Rogers from Bad Company and Free in a band called The Law. And sure, their record might also be a bit middling and generic, but it makes sense as a new project. However, if they credited the album to Kenny Jones just because he played drums on every song while literally everyone else involved seemed to have more input on the project, I'd have been just as perplexed there as I am here. John's more than capable of great brass arrangements, and while he's credited for playing some trombone in the liner notes, when you take a listen to, say, Hurricane... There's not even a question that these are simply synthesized horn stabs, and John's just capable of doing more than this, and frankly, doing it better.
2: Your love. Your love like
1: love. The most important part of the rock is checking out the liner notes, because apparently, a young man is holding down the beat here again and his name is Zach Starkey. He's Ringo Starr's son and Keith Moon actually helped teach him how to play. John clearly had a great time locking with him as a rhythm section, which would definitely matter more in the years to come. All of that said, is the rock bad? Is it good? I don't know, because I can't even settle on what it actually is, period. I know what it says on the spine, but my ears tell me something totally different. There's no trademark humor, well, I guess there's a little bit in Country Hurricane, little in the way of deeply cutting lyrics, and very little that would set it apart from pretty much any rock band working a club circuit in 1986 other than the fact that the bassist was already very, very famous. to pause right there just to tell you thank you so much for listening to discography i'm going to give you a couple of links that matter but we're not going to dwell on it as much as normal because we have so much ground to cover and we've got so much more who history to catch up on so uh as per usual i'd like to remind you that rating and reviewing discography wherever you found us be it itunes podchaser Spotify, whichever, any place that you can rate and review us really helps us get into brand new ears. And if you want to follow us on Facebook, a great place to do it is facebook.com slash discography on CPN, where you can just search for discography in the search bar and hey, who knows, maybe you'll find it. That'd be cool, right? Also, I'd like to remind you, we have lots of great great podcasts here on the consequence podcast network such as filmography this must be the place halloweenies filmography our sister brother non-binary relative show twice removed yes all of these things are completely worth your time if you want to get a little bit deeper, do you need to reach out to me? Great. Twitter.com slash That's right. On Twitter, I'm at MarkFy. That's M-A-R-C-F-I. If you want to follow my musical career in the best way that you can do it, well, there's markwithc.com. You can see lots of the records that I've put out over the years. You can stream me on Spotify if you want. Facebook.com slash music will keep you up to date with the latest news, uh, discography included. Or if you'd like to help me make future creations, Patreon.com slash with a C. This one really helps out because trying to put out a bunch of stuff for my 20th anniversary you can help make that happen. Plus you will get lots of cool stuff in return such as my other podcast The Real Congregation. That happens twice monthly. I'm sure there's a nicer way I could have said that. A more grammatically correct and interesting way but I'm just trying to rush through this so I can get back to who history. This has been Links That Matter with Mark with a C. Back to the show. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really
2: was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who, with an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, We've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com cos and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. As far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reverb LP is the marketplace for record collectors. Download the app. Scope out the store or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com slash cos. Now, back to Mark.
1: August of 1986 saw the release of a single LP's worth of tracks from Pete's few live shows from the previous year. It was called Deep End Live, and it boasted 10 tracks that ran the gamut from unexpected dips into a solo catalog rather than predictable hits with new takes on A Little Is Enough and Stop Hurting People. But it's also the home of some interesting covers, like the song that they picked for the single, Barefootin'.
2: but
1: But you also get shockingly moving versions of diametrically opposed material like I Put A Spell On You, which leads into the most tender reading of the beats, save it for later, one could pretty much ever hope for.
2: You hit the deck, you get found out Sooner or later you run away, you run away you're me down run
1: away, run away. And of course, there are some Who tunes here. Sure, you get your behind blue eyes and your pinball wizard, but the real money shot here is the straight-ahead Chicago blues-style take on the sole cover from the Tommy album, Sonny Boy Williamson's Eyesight to the Blind.
2: You talk about your woman, I wish you
1: Though the shows were pretty long and often could reach up to 26 songs at a stretch, the 40 minute running time does seem a little bit slight on Deep End Live, but for this short-lived supergroup, it's an amazing bit of insight into just how versatile this particular group of musicians really were, which would really come in handy in the very near future. As the three living members of the Who seemed dedicated to their own pursuits, there wasn't even much activity left for even the most ardent fans to pick apart anymore. Perhaps as a sign of the times, 19 years after it was begun, the official Who fan club closed its doors in 1986, but that's not to say that the activity was going to slow down on anyone's part. Just that this was the latest in a series of moves that seemed to enshrine the idea that going forward, the Who would only be a legacy act at best. This was further cemented by the release of 1987's Another Scoop, yet another collection of Pete's home demos and recordings. Much like the first volumes, you'll get peeks into formative versions of Who classics like Long Live Rock, Pinball Wizard, and a version of You Better You Bet that might make you wish that Pete had been the lead vocalist on The Who's version in the first place. Some genuinely great unreleased material here, including some looks into an album that Pete may have almost completed with a full on orchestra. One of those tracks is called Brooklyn Kids, and it stands solid and tall as one of Pete's most breathtaking and harrowing narratives, not to mention the unforgettable melodies that greet each lyrical turn. And another orchestral highlight is Football Fugue, a slightly more fierce and stabbing track that puts forth the notion that rock bands and musicians in general are playing for points. Just like any sports
2: team. Concentrate on the game. Oh far! Well, the whistle is blue, the conductor's prone to complain. Play the song on the walkamos, pass me the ball. Their
1: synthesizer experiments, gorgeous and primal ballads like The Shout, which have no business being orphaned and secreted away at the end of a compilation album of demos, and heck, when you hear the song Never Ask Me, which was allegedly written for Frank Sinatra to sing, you'll wonder why you're not already sick of it from adult contemporary radio. opinion that another scoop actually bests its predecessor by leaps and bounds. But this wouldn't be the only archival sequel coming down the pike either, as April of 1987 saw a sequel to the Who's Missing compilation called Two's Missing. Much like its predecessor, it's another worthwhile jumble of b-sides, non-album singles, and really besides one extra glimpse into the pre-my generation sessions called Motorin, the highlights are, yep, You guessed it, more clips from that San Francisco show in 1971 that is still in the freaking vault! It adds a bit of insult to injury to see this Vault-type release full of so much previously released material which gives you the impression that the outtake well is totally running dry yet there are still so many things sitting on a shelf somewhere and you just kinda know that the label is waiting for a special anniversary to charge you out the yin yang for the bonus content when it eventually arrives. Getting built for desirable material can be a fair trade depending on your level of fandom, but sometimes I personally wish they weren't so bleeding predictable about it. Anyways. Roger was already back at work, having contributed a cover of Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me to the soundtrack of the beloved cult film The Lost Boys. However, this was just a precursor to the release of... probably his most maligned record yet. That's right, Roger unleashed his next full-length solo offering in June of 1987. It was called Can't Wait to See the Movie, and... uh, Look, I don't want to go this route. I played this sucker over and over trying to find some really redeeming qualities, and while I still don't really like it and have had a hard time finding anyone who truly loves the thing to maybe help me see what I'm missing, I did kind of figure out what the record is and how to talk about it. Tell me, Are you ready okay, hear that? That's what I'm talking about. It's so generic that if you don't recognize Roger's voice, this could literally be any number of records by any cache of legacy acts in 1987. It's not as if Roger is doing a bad job or if he's singing poorly or anything like that. It's just that there's not really any personality here, almost at all. On his last album, Under a Raging Moon, the laundry list of people that showed up to help Roger make an album that was pretty well received and promising at the time, that all seemed to work. I mean, as well as it could, the album was successful enough to warrant a tour. FM airplay was happening and really all that was needed afterwards to really establish Roger as his own thing and not just being seen as the guy who used to sing for the Who just another solid enough album didn't need to blow you away just enough going on to establish where he was going as well as his own style instead the follow up was this unbearably tame slick and over polished platter This
2: to be a way to stop. It.
1: I kind of dig that one, uh, When the Thunder Comes, but when you check out the liner notes, you'll find that it took no less than 27 musicians to make this record. And as at least three percussionists are listed, but it's clear that this album relies almost completely on drum machines, you start to wonder who assembled this, what they were going for, and what kind of phone tag must have taken place to make a staggeringly below average slice of 1987 pop. I can't even put it in the realm of hard rock anymore. It's not. And hey, there's nothing wrong with pop. At all. Hell, I love pop. But can't wait to see the movie as the sound of just punching a bunch of notes into some computers, getting it spat back out at you and singing over it. And that worked well for The Who with Baba O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again. But here, as much as it pains me to say it, it just feels lazy. There are some recognizable names here, and the guidance of David Foster certainly explains a lot, as he's the cat that, um how do I put this, kind of pushed the band Chicago into whatever the hell direction they went into by the 1980s. Some things are provided by Roger's longtime solo sideman, Russ Ballard, and the whole affair is produced by Alan Shacklock, who'd done some of the lesser records by Bonnie Tyler and Meatloaf, and the melodrama meets unpointed cheese that you'd expect from a Meatloaf album without Jim Steinman at the helm goes a long way towards explaining how we got here.
2: I'm down my home. Cars and,
1: and i know that when you hear bits like this piecemeal it can kind of seem like a more interesting record than i'm giving it credit for but it's really that as a whole it doesn't add up to anything and as a whole it feels generic and plain and not Roger Daltrey at all but that said Roger actually does have two co-writing credits here and one of them falls on what is absolutely the most interesting song here a track called balance on wires in an album that tries to flirt with funk pseudo gospel soul and pop but all of the synthesized sounds make everything stylistically interchangeable this completely unpredictable song is actually what turned me around and made me at least kind of have a perspective on what was going on here In six minutes the song goes from total gloom to a rock and middle and ends on kind of a weird and spooky note, and by simply the virtue of not fitting in with the album, it becomes the best track by default. I ended up actually kinda liking Can't Wait to See the Movie because I played it so much trying to figure out what to even tell you about it, and that means that I can't really used the review that I wanted to, which was, "Geez, I hope the movie is silent, but it's also in a long line of albums made around this time from artists who had been around the block, but were figuring out how new equipment, styles, and production techniques would fit into their future, and sometimes this would be really commercially successful, like Pink Floyd's momentary lapse of reason. Occasionally, a band like the Grateful Dead would somehow break through with songs like Touch of Grey using similar production formats. Unfortunately, Roger Daltrey's attempt to potentially do the same thing didn't really please anyone. The record was panned across the board by critics, and the only place this record even charted at all was… Sweden. A swing and a miss is really the best way to describe this album. Roger wasn't the only one trying to find themselves under these increasingly quickly moving times, though. John Entwistle started gigging with a band called Rat Race Choir in 1987, presumably just to get out there and do something. It was his first major set of tour dates since the breakup of The Who, and though he'd find himself stuck in small clubs for the majority of the venues, and the band seemed to mostly do more slightly metallic versions of songs popularized by The Who. The important part of this development is the drummer, Steve Luongo. He and John would become fast friends, would be highly inspirational to each other, and it gave John the security of having a rhythm section he could lock with again, so onwards and upwards. Meanwhile, Pete had been working on a musical adaptation of Ted Hughes' beloved children's book, The Iron Man, but something came up and it was big. The Who decided to do a 25th anniversary tour in 1989, playing the biggest stadiums around. The reasons were myriad, but according to Pete's book, Who I Am, he readily admits that once his wife, Karen, had become pregnant, he saw a huge Who tour as a lucrative way to pay for the upcoming expenses. It's not the happiest reason to get your band back together, but hey, it's the Who, so who cares what the reason is? We've seen them play for worse reasons, right? But here's a few unfortunate things about that tour. First of all, on paper, it looks like a dream set list, but when you'd arrive at the show, you'd find that Pete was mostly playing rhythm guitar and 80% of the time that was on an acoustic. He'd leave the solos and distortions to a newcomer to the Who stage show known as Steve Boltz Bolton. And sure, Roger and John were there, good as ever, but so was pretty much the entirety of the deep-end band. This made many of the performances seem rather sanitized and staid and frankly, though some fans were able to enjoy the show for what it was, something that no one even thought possible, reactions were and remain mixed about such a decision. Pete's reasoning for handling the tour in this fashion was more logical than artistic, though. Years of loud music had shattered his hearing, leaving him with the painful syndrome of tinnitus. Pete needed to come up with a way for the Who to still be loud as heck, but to not have to stand in front of a loud amplifier and monitor system all night. Instead, the more backing vocalists he added, the more percussionists, the more horns, the more noise would be coming off the stage, and further damage to Pete's hearing would be minimal at best. Most of the world's first taste of this reunion came on June 27th of 1989 through a live broadcast of a show from Radio City Music Hall in New York where the band would perform Tommy nearly in full. Something did seem a little bit awry to me as a child while I was listening in live, but I like so many others, I was just happy that there was any new who activity at all, and it's only really in hindsight that the decisions made and acted upon around this time seem exceptionally strange. But The other drawback to the 1989 Who Tour, which is sometimes unaffectionately dubbed the Who on Ice, in reference to how safe as milk the group was starting to sound, is that Pete's newest album was going to be released while the tour was underway. He'd hardly be able to promote it, and only found it easy to wedge in maybe one song per night from it into these shows, and when he did, well, despite the fact that the band was performing some of Pete's solo material like Rough Boys and Face the Face, Next to no one was coming to that reunion tour hoping to hear Pete's new solo tunes, and what began as a three-hour show full of obscurities would eventually be pared down to shows that would run just over two hours in length. Bits of the somewhat overblown early stages of the tour can be seen in clips from the giant stadium show on an official DVD known as Maximum R&B, but hey, what about that new Pete album? Pete Townsend's album The Iron Man was released by Atlantic Records in July of 1989, a few weeks into The Who's gargantuan 1989 tour. The sticker affixed to the rapper on my copy said, First new studio album in four years includes the single A Friend is a Friend plus two new songs by The Who. And then the full title, The Iron Man, a musical by Pete Townsend. Right, so my thought at the time, and remember, I'm like 11 when this thing came out. It's the first, quote, new Who product that has come out in my lifetime since my deep love for the band began. There was no reason for me to not think that this wasn't a successor to Tommy. A new Quadrophenia. I mean, why else would they point out that this is a musical? Why else would the Who be here? And I liked it well enough at the time, but eventually I moved on, kind of forgot about it. Checked it out again in my 20s and realized that I absolutely loathed it. I could not stand it. I wanted it scrubbed from history completely. And today, I stand here before you realizing that I'd completely misunderstood this album for years, and that's completely 100% due to the marketing. If it had been made clear from the word go that this was a musical intended for children that adults could also enjoy, that's all I'd have needed to hear, truthfully. Instead, for years, I thought this was just some batshit and pointless thing, and now, when I found out that this was originally supposed to be a double album, but it was sliced down to 45 minutes at the label's behest, I really felt for Pete. This is clearly a passion project for him, and now I want to hear Pete's children's album as he originally intended, but first, there's two things I want to point out. One this album that's merely looked at as a curiosity nowadays may be the first time that Pete released a batch of songs that weren't in some way inspired by, or specifically for, that initial clutch of fans from the Gold Hot Club and the Railway Hotel. And if he somehow was, he was writing it for their freaking grandkids. And number two, this is the real sea change. Listen, hear me now, believe me later. There is no more Brute Force Who. That band is dead. Instead, everyone overall is going to slightly favor cleaner and slightly more shrill tones sometimes, and there's going to be emphasis on real dynamics rather than just being soft or loud. And One of the first misconceptions is that this is a Pete Townsend album. Now sure, he wrote these songs, but it's adapted from the children's book by Ted Hughes. And Pete is only the lead vocalist for about half of the running time. The vocals can be handled by anyone from a group of woodland creatures that includes Billy Nichols, who was also the musical director for The Who's 1989 tour, as well as a backing vocalist on the gigs. Pete's brother Simon sings a short interlude as an owl. Roger Daltrey voices Hogarth's father, with Hogarth, the child, himself being played by Pete. Nina Simone shows up as a space dragon the size of Australia that wants to consume living flesh and John Lee Hooker plays the titular Iron Man. There's little point in hashing out the story for you here. I mean, if you got the LP, you get a nice booklet that you can follow along with. But I'd never read the original book, so I can't talk to you about how this adaptation might divert from the original intent or anything like that, but here is something I can tell you. Listen, I've gone on at length about how Roger's solo albums have become increasingly generic and cheesy, and in fairness, the Iron Man isn't exempt from that either, but the main difference? Despite the slick tones, I can hear genuine passion for the material in these voices. On its own, as a pure listening experience, you can pick up parts of a story, but it's pretty clearly missing tons of connective tissue. I'd imagine that if you grew up on the book, that this can almost just play through like a bunch of tunes inspired by something that meant a lot to you at one time. If not, and you've just picked this up as the new Pete Townsend album, thinking this is just the newest release from the guy that brought you Let My Love Open The Door in Slitskirts, yeah you're gonna be confused. But I mean, come on, John Lee Hooker is the Iron Man? There's a lot to like on this fascinating and star-studded album. First, we've just got to talk about the Who's tunes. The first of a pair of new recordings is a mid-tempo number named Dig.
2: When you dream of a laser that sears your soul Slices like a razor and burns like a cold And burns like a cold You can bet you'll forget when the rock stops.
1: While it doesn't necessarily sound like the Who of yesteryear, it's still definably them. And if you wanted to, you could draw a parallel between Roger singing about literally just digging a hole whenever you feel low and say, now I'm a farmer from Odds and sods," Or heck, Baba O'Reilly, because if you'll remember, the kickoff to what would have been Lifehouse was a frustrated farmer. Has Pete ever played at Farm Aid? I think I'm onto something here, but anyways, regardless, it's not the most instantly memorable track, but it's certainly among the cream of the crop here, and I have to imagine that the album could have been much more successful if this song had been marketed as the single, but I could also see where that would have led to even more confusion. Now, slightly less successful is the band's take on Arthur Brown's Fire. It does have a huge place in the narrative, but as far as being a really cool Who track... I can't help but notice how much more the bass tones sound like a Tony Levin-styled thing than anything that would have left John Entwistle's fingers. little bit of, like, phoned-in fury, and that's one reason that this kinder and gentler who approach isn't the end of the world. They aren't 19 anymore, and why should they pretend that they are, right?
0: I looked and
2: saw you were growing fat on the spoils of war. I want food past. I want fast food! Past. I want fast food! organs! Delicacy chew!
1: If you can believe it, that's Nina Simone stealing the show on side two of the record. Usually smoldering and simmering with emotion, Nina goes full ham here on her Space Dragon character, and when seen through the light of a kid's record, it's disarmingly charming. Equally charming are some of Pete's ballads, not the least of which is the gentle and flamenco-inspired A Fool Says. But the true top honors here, well, I'd simply be remiss if I didn't award them to the lead single from the album and easily the best track found on this platter, A Friend is a Friend. It's such a simple concept, too. Trust your friends because they're your friends, and that's that. It doesn't need any further sentiments, but somehow it only gets stronger and more resonant over its five minute running time, especially when this children's chorus chimes in.
2: So
1: is the Iron Man perfect? No. Does it even really make much sense? Well, no, not really to me, but I haven't read the original book. But any record where Pete Townsend can get the hard living John Lee Hooker to rhyme premium gas with nitro demitasse for kids while also having a healthy dose of programmed synclavier running throughout, well, it's at least bound to be interesting. There was precisely one stage production of the full musical around 1993 and that's when warner brothers picked up the option to turn the album's adaptation into the film known as the iron giant the film didn't use any of pete's music but it does keep much of pete's tone intact and this is likely why he still ended up with a executive producer's credit on the movie when it finally appeared in 1999 a full decade later so basically I first heard this album when I was around 11 years old. I was the target audience without realizing it, and without knowing anything at all, really, I didn't think too hard and I liked it just fine. And ultimately that's what makes this a successful record. It might not be for every kid, but it at least worked for one of them and he's hosting this show right now. Finally, understanding that the biggest problems with the Iron Man as an album may have been completely the fault of Atlantic Records allows me to hear the record in a whole new light, and now it's a completely different experience with older and hopefully wiser ears. Alright, folks, the sad reality is that's gonna do it for this week's episode of Discography. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for supporting the Consequence Podcast Network. Thank you so much for taking this journey with me. I literally can't thank you enough. It's impossible. I don't have it in me. And frankly, I'd stretch the show way past its running time just to give you all the thanks that I think you deserve for taking the journey with me. I don't wanna be redundant. Or silent for too long, so let's keep this moving. Discography is produced for the Consequence Podcast Network by little Old me, Mark with a C, right here in my home studio in Orlando, Florida. Next week, we're going to pick up exactly where we left off. We're going to talk about the critical reaction to the Iron Man. We're going to talk about the Who wrapping up the 1989 tour. We got still so much to cover. I mean... Right now, the 1989 tour could conceivably have grandkids. Isn't that unbelievable? Wow. Time waits for no one. Anyways, you've been a fantastic audience. A reminder, look us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash discography on CPN. Rate and review us on iTunes or pretty much wherever you procured this podcast. Simple word of mouth. That'll help us get into the ears of lots more Who fans. And... You can check me out on Twitter at twitter.com slash markfi, M-A-R-C-F-I, that is, of course, and facebook.com slash music, patreon.com slash C, and markwithac.com if you want to get some of my records and whatnot. I gotta roll. Thank you so much. Oh, there I am being redundant again. Until next time, my friends, take care. Background music by Chris Abriski and Jordan McKenna.